So I've been uh, working my way through uh, our way through John's gospel, and I wanted to take more time on chapter six, not only because it's a crucial gospel, it's one of our primary texts having to do with understanding the real presence, uh, but also because just this whole question of uh, presence has been on my mind a lot. Um, and I thought, so, t- so today I'm going to take a little bit of a chance and, and just speak more about what it means to say that, that anyone is present, okay? Because presence is a, it's a really interesting concept if you stop and think about it. Uh, I think we've all been uh, at, at uh, a talk or during a homily or something, and our mind wanders and we say, well, I wasn't really present to what the speaker was saying, right? Uh, so I'm there, like I'm, I'm physically there I'm in proximity to the speaker, but I'm not present somehow, I'm absent. What does that mean? Like, what are we talking about? It's an it's a interesting thing once you start thinking about it. Um, and I, I thought I would say a little bit about uh, conversion, because I, I mentioned in the opening prayer that I, I offered uh, for us, that our faith in the real presence is something that should be growing all the time, right? It's, we don't just make one act of faith in the real presence and then from then on it's unambiguously clear. Because if you think about it, um, I, I can speak perhaps more effectively to those of you uh, who are married here, but any relationship you've had, isn't it the case that you go through these periods of time where you think you know a person and then like they do something, not necessarily bad, it could be a really good thing, you think like, wow, I, I never knew that about my spouse, I never knew that about my brother. I never imagined my sister could do such and such a thing. And what it means to be with that person now is different than it was before. Like their presence has been changed in some way. And, and when I think about that person, even when they're not physically there and I imagine their presence, I'm imagining someone slightly different than what I had previously. So there's a kind of ongoing exploration of what, who this person is and what it means to be with that person. Uh, and sometimes this can involve a conversion. Conversions, uh, we don't use this language in the secular world so much, but it's very much a part of contemporary culture. Uh, where I see it is in these you know, slick new words like uh, you know, red pill. You know what it means to take the red pill? I never saw the Matrix films. I think it comes from the Matrix films. But I think the idea is you take the pill and the way you see reality is changed, right? So before you were living in this matrix thing and now you see things as they really are. Uh, or how about, like from a different perspective, becoming woke. Uh, I don't quite know what that means either, but the basic idea is the same. It's like before I was sleeping and I couldn't really tell what was going on and now I'm woke and I see things for what they are. This is a conversion um, experience that people are talking about. Um, and the fact that this is so much a part of our contemporary conversation indicates that there's something about our contemporary situation that doesn't match, uh, it, it doesn't predict well what's happening in our lives. And so we feel this cognitive dissonance and we have to change the way we see things. Now, uh, Benedictines should be good at this sort of thing because we pledge ourselves to ongoing conversion. So. And what this means is, I used to think I knew who God was, but because God is infinite and infinitely strange as a result, uh, I can never know God as God is. I can only get better and better approximations. I, I can know more about God. Some people have a very familiar, intimate relationship with God, uh, but there's always more to know about God. And so, uh, and because God is infinitely different than we are, uh, there's infinitely more to know about God. So the, the idea of ongoing conversion is one of continual change of perspective. Because the more I know God, the more I know about God's creatures. You know, the more I know about God's intentions for me and for others. And so the closer I get to God, the closer I get to the truth. But if there's infinitely much to know about God, there's infinitely much to know about truth. And um, so this, the, the difficulty here is that conversion uh, often comes at cost, right? So uh, if, um, 
it's almost, it's really difficult even to come up with a good example because these, the, the terms are so um, loaded and charged these days, say in politics or something. But, um, uh, well, I know, I can, I can take a good example. I've been reading a book by the uh, uh, philosopher Leszek uh, Kołakowski, who's a Polish philosopher, and a committed socialist as a young man. And like uh, many intellectuals of his day, he came to a kind of conversion and saw, wow, communism doesn't work. Like we say, we, we have all this rhetoric that we, we talk about. So I was just reading a, an essay of his that he wrote as a, a graduate student in philosophy uh, that was censored. It, it wasn't published until after the fall of communism, but he wrote it in 1956. And in it, he's saying, you know, we say that uh, uh, what we're doing is bringing about this, this socialist paradise, but in fact, everything's different than what we say. And this was a painful experience for him. Among other things, for him to come out and say this meant that his works got censored, meant that he lost uh, friends, meant that he was on the uh, suspect list of the government, <coughs> right? So when we go through one of these conversions, what can happen is that the people who were familiar to us can become strange, or they might not like the new us. You know, because we might, uh, it causes everybody around us to have to make a decision whether to change and go along with what's happening in our conversion. Um, so, my impression is that one of, the, one of the things I'm going to argue for in what I'm talking about today, our difficulty with grappling with the real presence, difficulty in understanding the sacraments, has a long history and we enter into a story that's been going on for centuries. And uh, beginning with uh, certain elements in the Renaissance, the Reformation, uh, accelerating with the Enlightenment and really accelerating since say 1968 or so, uh, there's been this change in the way we use words. And uh, words like real, Words like presence, words like freedom. Uh, these words have been, their meaning has changed. And so when we read, uh, say, someone like Cicero or Seneca writing about libertas, freedom, we understand something different by the word than what they mean. So there's the danger then, if this is true, that when we say real presence, we mean something other than what Thomas Aquinas might have meant. That's not necessarily bad because words can develop and change and they might have a closer meaning to reality. But I'm going to suggest that you know, one of the difficulties, you, you hear these uh, uh, surveys or studies on Catholic belief from time to time that say like so many people don't believe in the real presence or whatever. Um, whereas I, I would guess if you went back to you know, 100 years or something, it would have been pretty unambiguously the case that most Catholics believe in the real presence. Um, what's going on? Why do we have difficulty understanding this, the, these ideas of the sacraments? And I think what, what we can do, uh, even though I assume because we're all here today, you, know, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't spend hours of your Sunday at church if you didn't believe in it, uh, but, but if we can re-articulate and re uh, establish for ourselves what we mean by Christ's presence in the Eucharist and Christ's presence in creation, then we can be more effective witnesses because we can help people change the way they see things. Uh, we can bring about conversion in others by a different kind of rhetoric, a different way of approaching. I'm not there yet. I don't have the answers, but uh, I wanted to share some reflections with you on this problem and uh, get your feedback on it. So, um, Back to my text now. So, our Lord at the end of chapter 6 in John's Gospel has, says some pretty shocking things. You know, unless you feed on the flesh of the Son of Man, you don't have life in you. And the word he uses, the Greek word uh, that I've translated in this case as feed, it's really the way animals eat. Um, I've heard different attempts by biblical scholars and theologians and others to translate this word. But it certainly is nothing like dine or, or even eat. It's more like, you know, munch, you know, consume, wolf down or something like that. It's, it's very earthy. It's very uh, tactile. Um, our Lord doesn't want to leave any doubt that what appears as bread is his flesh. Okay. And unsurprisingly, a bunch of the people uh, in the group with him are, are saying at the end, 
uh, okay, no thanks. This is too much. And they leave, right? So this was a conversion. This was a, a challenge to their worldview that they couldn't accept. It, was, it came at too high a price for whatever reason. And then at the end, of, of course, our Lord asks the apostles, uh, what about you? Are you going to leave too? Right? And uh, John's gospel doesn't have Peter's uh, confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi, but he has this confession of faith instead. Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You, know, you have the words of eternal life. So uh, the apostles, even though this is a hard teaching, and it is a hard teaching, right? I mean, we, have, we say that what's, what we see is different, or what we understand by faith is different from what we see in the bread and wine. It's actually Christ's body and blood. Uh, this takes a certain kind of change of perspective on the world and what the world means in order to believe this. Uh, so it is hard, uh, but because we trust uh, in who the Lord says he is and whom he has commissioned in the church, we can make this act of faith, but it has a bearing on the way we see everything in the world. Because um, here, as I mentioned, so one of the, the difficulties we run into in this, I think, is um, God is everywhere, right? That's God, God is actually in no place at all. God, God is not localizable. God is God. And uh, uh, only material things can be in a place. Okay? Um, but because of that, God is everywhere, right? And nowhere at the same time. Uh, Christ is everywhere. We, we can pray anywhere, right? We can, we can call upon our Lord right now and we believe he hears us. That means he's here. Uh, he says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, here we are. He's here. Okay. Um, what's different about this kind of presence than the presence we talked about in the Eucharist? Uh, so let me un unpack just a little bit of the words real and presence. Uh, let's start with the word real. We just assume we know what this word means, right? And, and this, is a, this has a pretty important bearing on us because we say things are real. We mean that's, that's reality is kind of what we think we're dealing with all the time. So how can it be that I could say, well, the word real could have a different meaning than what, what we think it has? Um, let, let me back up what I'm about to say with uh, another example. The, a fellow, Patrick Deneen, who teaches at Notre Dame, just came out with a book called The Failure of Liberalism. And uh, it's, it's a fine book. It's definitely worth reading. Uh, I would basically endorse the argument. And he points out that the word freedom, the way we use it uh, today, by instinct is different than how it was used a thousand years ago. And it changes somewhere uh, around the Enlightenment. And there's a deliberate... Uh, and, and it's now... It's built into our political system. So it's hard for us to think of liberty in a different way because the way we use it in political life is sort of dictated by things like the Constitution. And so the Constitution means something very particular by it. But when, for example, uh, in the Middle Ages, they talked about the liberal arts, uh, the point of the liberal arts was to make free persons. In, in most cases, it was men, though uh, in, in convents, sisters got the same liberal arts education. The freedom that liberal arts were to bring about was freedom from our own limitations in terms of our, our passions and vices, okay? So, for instance, a child is not really free because a child, uh, you know, before the age of reason uh, can only do either what the parents tell the child to do if the child's left to his own devices, his or her own devices, you know how it is. They'll often choose something that's bad for them. <laughs> if, you, if you say to a child, well, have whatever you want to eat. When I was five years old, I would have said, excellent, cookies all day, <laughs> right? And uh, this might, by our standards, this might appear to be freedom. But we also know that, that this, this child, if, if the parents don't intervene and say, well, you have to eat your broccoli first, uh, then the child will grow up and have a very difficult time in life because um, 
you know, again, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I would go on wanting to eat cookies. And in fact, you know, one of the things that happened was I was just telling some, uh, some of you that I, when I was younger, I had a, a real sweet tooth. And I still do, but I, I know now better the consequences of, of eating sugar. Uh, so when I got to be old enough to have a paper out and mow lawns and, and get my own money, you know, I'd often spend it on a dozen donuts. Why not? Um, and uh, the, the problem is then you, you get hooked on sugar, you know, you get, you get hooked on things and then you're not free not to eat donuts, right? Uh, addictions, we're very familiar with addictions today and how addictions work. Um, and and the, the thing about an addiction is you're not free anymore, right? So it starts off with a kind of freedom like, great, you know, now that I'm an adult, <coughs> I can, I can have whatever I want, uh, and uh, I want a beer, you know? And then it becomes, I want five beers. Then it becomes, I, I want to stop at the liquor store every time I'm coming home from work. Uh, and that's not freedom. In, in one way, it appears to be, right? I'm just doing what I want. And that's, the, that's the, our modern idea of liberty. But the classical idea of liberty is that I am sovereign over my own impulses, and I'm not governed by any, like, I'm sovereign, I, I'm sovereign over fear, for example. If someone threatens me, they can't get me to do what they want by threatening me because I do, I'm a master of my own fear. So I'm free to do whatever, to do the right thing. I'm free to be courageous. Uh, I, I find in, in contemporary political discourse, there's so much anxiety today, so much anxiety. And people are not free when they're anxious because they react. They react and, and they make the situation worse usually. Uh, and so, um, you know, I have a Facebook page because our, uh, you, to have a, a Facebook page for the monastery, you have to have an individual with a birthday and all that. Uh, and of course, when you have a Facebook page, people find you. It's almost impossible not to be friended. And those moments when I do uh, sort of scroll through my feed, it's one thing after another. The world is collapsing. We must do something. Like post every five minutes on Facebook, something else that's terrible. So we all feel, you know, and, and you see from, from an outsider's perspective, from someone who doesn't use this, um, these people, poor people are just stuck in fear. And so they're not really free to respond from a place of personal integrity and rationality they respond out of a feeling that I've got to do something. I have to do something. I'm compelled to do something. I'm not free if I'm being compelled to do something, right? So, uh, so this is, I use this as an example because uh, you'll see that this idea of freedom plays into the other changes of meanings in words. Um, and this has really happened. You know, you, this is documentable, I think, any any philologist or linguist or, or philo uh, uh, you know, student of history can, can prove this without too much trouble, that this word has changed meaning. So what about real? Now that's a trickier one. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's the case, it's one of these weird things that uh, Latin and Greek and Hebrew don't have a word for reality. There is no, there is no <laughs> word you can translate into, uh, into Latin from our word reality. Um, that said, the word real and reality come from Latin. And in fact, realitas enters Latin later. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a late sort of back formation as philosophy was changing. It comes from the word res. Uh, the word res in Latin means thing, affair. It's kind of a catch-all word. Uh, we, it, it enters into our uh, political life again as res publica. And that just means like public affairs, right? So a republic is uh, a particular way of dealing with public affairs, all right? Um, so a res can be a concrete thing. It could be like a table, it could be a jumble of garbage in the corner, but it could also be something more abstract, again, like uh, political debate, um, some, an event that happened, like we could talk about, oh, the Watergate. Father Edward and I were talking about this uh, for some reason yesterday, but pretty soon no one's going to remember Watergate. <laughs> As, uh, we were naming off some of the characters that we grew up, uh, you know, who were just in the news all the time in the 70s. And our brother Gabriel, who was born in 
1991 has never heard of any of these people. You know? uh, so um, uh, that was that was a thing that happened, right? That Watergate was a res, some some identifiable thing. All right. Um, so try a thought experiment. What's the opposite of real? Anybody just offer whatever? Fake. Fake. False. False. That's not real. It's unreal. Unreal. Uh, this isn't real sugar. It's uh, yeah. It's artificial, right? Or um, uh, yeah, that 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 movie wasn't real. It's make believe, right? It's fiction or something. So uh, fiction. That's a very interesting word again. Um, what I would point about point out about these words, uh, especially the ones I, that I, I mentioned. <laughs> But even fake, I think, because someone has to fake something, right? That comes from a verb originally. Something that's fake is something that was faked, right? So faking artifice, like making by means of art rather than by nature, artificial. Make believe, you're making something to make other people believe it. Um, and then fiction, again, is a, it's a making of something. It's, it's uh, from the Latin word faccio. Uh, so there's real stuff, and then there's stuff like we make. Like that's the distinction, okay, between the two things. Um, that that's uh, what that indicates is that the change in meaning that we've gone through is connected to uh, uh, this. This next two minutes are going to be a little more philosophically dense. So if you follow it, great. If you don't, don't worry about it too much. But what's happened is. Uh, a philosophical stance called voluntarism, which emphasizes the will and doing things, uh, as opposed to a philosophical stance that emphasizes the truth of things. Okay, uh, this is part of what the, ch the has happened with the change. So the older idea of liberty is about the truth of the human person. The newer idea of liberty is not so much about the truth, but about whatever I want to make, whatever I want to do with my life, whatever I want to make out of myself. I can change my own nature if I want. That's what we're told these days. Uh, I don't have to be stuck with you know, who I am. I can remake my identity anytime I want. Um, so that's voluntarism, where the choice is important. Uh, voluntariness is important. Not so much truth. Uh, then, uh, voluntarists, so this this philosophical idea goes back maybe to the 14th century strongly, but it becomes much more important in the modern times. But a voluntarist uh, apply this to God. It originally starts with an idea of God. That God made the universe as it is, but he could have made the universe in countless other ways. Okay? And actually this is a really tricky, believe it or not, this, this idea has lots of problems to it. Because it makes God kind of arbitrary. Like, couldn't God have done a better job than what he did? I mean, if he had the choice to make a different kind of universe, like, can't, doesn't that start to call into question? Um, this idea of God, it's not clear that this enters Europe from Islam, but this is very much uh, what Allah is like. Allah is inscrutable, makes judgments, and you can't really know the truth about him, okay? Um, Allah does not have a logos, as the God the Father has a logos, right? So logos means word, or reason, or, or, um, or even an argument. Like God, our, the God the Father of, of uh, the Jews and Christians communicates the truth about himself, okay? Allah does not do that. And in fact, uh, Allah can change his mind about things and one thing can be true one time and it can be and it can be different later on uh, we say no that doesn't happen in our understanding of theology so that's one important difference in, in the theological understandings however voluntarists do say something like that <laughs> about God that, that God could change things if he wanted to okay uh, whereas and this calls into question of how we understand truth for example all right so that's my digression there so uh, now I want to get to what's really the bulk of what I want to say today, and it's about presence, because uh, 
This is, a, as I indicated earlier on, this kind of a vexed question. And uh, let me jump right to uh, what really got, set me thinking about this uh, and has been troubling me for about five or six years now. Uh, in our formation classes, we were reading a book called Real Presences by a fellow named George Steiner, who's actually a, a sort of literary critic. And um, his career gets started. He, he uh, was a child um, immigrant, I guess. Uh, his, his family escaped uh, the Nazis, his, his Jewish family. And uh, as he came of age as a scholar in the 60s, the big question he had, and this has fueled a really impressive career, and he's written fantastic books, very difficult to understand, um, is how can it be that the works of literature, the works of music, the works of art that he loves, he's a very refined man, how can it be that I can listen to Schubert and Schumann and hear so much beauty and Mozart and so on, but so could Nazi officers? Like how is it that they could listen to beautiful music at the end of the day when they were signing death warrants for millions of people. How can that be? Something's gone wrong in our culture because this, this, uh, these beautiful pieces of music, this beautiful literature should have brought about a nobility of soul that would have made the Nazi experiment impossible. Germany was perhaps the most cultured country in Europe in 1900. How could this happen? So Steiner has been puzzling over this for his whole career. I, I believe he's still alive. Uh, but this book, Real Presences, is his uh, really, real masterpiece. But we were discussing this, um, and uh, he was talking about the difficulty we have in, in sensing a, the presence of the author in a text. So when, um, when we're reading a novel, say by Dostoevsky, for example, um, maybe my favorite author. Um, do, we, do we sense Dostoevsky speaking to us when we're reading it? Maybe a better example for me personally, because I can speak to this more effectively. One of the reasons I love to play Beethoven at the piano is because uh, I often have this very uh, visceral experience that Beethoven is, is there. <laughs> uh, he has such a sense of humor, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I don't, I've read biographies of Beethoven, but he speaks through his music, and there's something about that, his music, that really touches me. I, I feel like I get Beethoven, like he, he makes sense to me. Uh, if, if I had a bit his training and genius, I think I'd make the choices he made, like I get it. Um, and as I say, a lot of his choices are very witty and interesting, unusual, haven't really been followed up on by other composers. He's very interesting. Um, and uh, so when I'm playing and, and uh, a piece, uh, a moment comes up where I, I sense this wit or this, this earnestness that he often has, you know, this kind of naive earnestness about the feeling in his music, uh, I think, you know, I, I have various responses. I feel like he's sitting there next to me and we can kind of share a joke. I think... Boy, I hope to meet him in heaven so I can talk to him about like what he was thinking when he wrote this. Um, so there's this sense that the music, it isn't me. I don't have the freedom to express just me when I play Beethoven. I have to enter into his thought world in some way. I have to like interrogate him. Uh, I can't make Dostoevsky mean anything I want. Uh, it's important to, to respect the fact that someone wrote these words and that he had some, some meaning that he was trying to convey. So I'm constrained in my interpretation of the text by, by, what, uh, by who I'm, I'm hearing speaking in it. What Steiner said in this uh, is that, you know, modern English departments, so he's really attacking uh, sort of an academic approach to literature. And, and he's very aware that he's a part of the problem. <laughs> Um, a certain type of, of uh, investigation, analysis of texts obliterates the fact that there's a man or a woman who wrote these things and, and who put herself into it, <laughs> who, who sweated it out, who, who uh, and I, I, as long as I brought up female authors, let's, let's admit, women authors, say, in the 19th century didn't always do very well socially. They, they had trouble getting their things published. They were looked askance. Um, so there was real 
personal investment in uh, you know uh, the works of uh, uh, the Bronte sisters, and and it's worth our time to listen for that when we're reading them, right? Uh, to 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 make that human connection with the presence, their presence in that text. Steiner's saying that modern academic thinking has has put up a wall between us and the author, and. As we were discussing this in class, something uh, a little frightening struck me. Is part of the problem we have in, in sensing the person behind the text uh, related to perhaps the problem we have sensing the person behind the bodies of the people that we meet? <laughs> like, is it, is it possibly the case that not everybody I meet, I treat as a real human presence? Is that possible? I think it is. Um, and one of the things that's, that's really, again, gotten me thinking about this is since, oh, I don't know, about August 2016, I mentioned my Facebook feed. Um, what I keep hearing from, from people is uh, Trump voters are not rational. And um, now you can disagree and we should have robust disagreements in our democratic uh, polity. That's, that's how it works. We should we have freedom of speech so we can say whatever we want so that we can disagree about things. We can come to political decisions together. If we don't think our fellow citizens are rational, we're really in trouble. That's really a problem. I contest that this is an irrationality, okay? You might not agree with the reason someone had for voting for Donald Trump, but to call the person irrational is really a, a, a troubling thing because uh, it, it means that their brains aren't functioning in, in, in a recognizably human way, right? And uh, this, this means that if I have a, an exchange with this person, that person in some sense isn't there. Uh, unless I can get them to, to agree with me, uh, I, I sort of dismiss the possibility that I have anything to learn from them or that they might have reasons that I could judge, respond to in some way. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that we're at a point where things are... are such that we sort of dehumanize the persons we say are irrational, but I think it's a danger that we have. And uh, if, so, so this has been propelling this question of what does it mean to say someone is present um, and, and to, to recognize the presence in someone. Uh, so let me go back to the real presence and then come at this again. So that, that's the core of the problem and what I'm, Exploring is how we can, um, in our own lives, avoid these pitfalls and be converted to a much more sacramental understanding of all of reality, including the persons whom we meet. Uh, so the real presence is about Christ present in a particular mode. And the mode is as a res, as a thing, right? So Christ is, is really present in what appears to be bread and wine, under the, the figure of bread and wine, is how it's often said, right? Um, and the, the difficulty with the change in the way we use the word real, so before it just meant Christ is in the thing, right? Now it means sort of not fake presence. And the problem with this change is that it means that Christ's presence in other things is kind of downgraded. Um, as if it's, it's not real. Like Christ's presence in, in other things is not real. It's different. It's sort of symbolic instead of real. Um, now, again, I, if, if this is so, then we've changed uh, from the stance of the early church. I think in, in the Catholic Church, we continue, even though we often, when we sort of debate about these things, we often say things like, um, you know, a symbolic presence doesn't count or something like that. Um, but in fact, the way we act is in accord with more of a continuous understanding of Christ's presence. So, you know, we, we, we say we serve Christ in the poor, for example, and I, I think people who do that mean it. They really do see Christ in the poor. You know, when, when Mother Teresa would talk about Christ in distressing disguise, she meant it. You know, this is Christ in this person. 
And I think all of us have a sense of that. And, and perhaps many of us live that in a strong way. But when we start to reflect on it, we, we sort of run into problems with the words we're using. So that's, that's part of what I'm saying. I'm not saying again that we're, we're all heretics or something because we live in the modern world. Um, but if we go, say, to the rule of St. Benedict um, and documents from that era of the church, Christ is present in the church. I, as I said before, if two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he's present. It's, it's, it's not a localizable presence in the same way that the Eucharist is, but he's still here. Um, Christ is present in the scriptures. So when we do Lexio Divina, Christ speaks to me directly from the scriptures. Right? So, so this is why we treat, I don't ever let brothers put anything on top of a Bible. Uh, you'll notice over here I have the Bible on top. <laughs> I, I won't put anything on top of the Bible because that's Christ. That's Christ's presence in that book. This is why uh, when we carry the Evangelarium, you know, the book of the Gospels, you don't put anything on that either and you incense it. You carry it in procession with candles and incense because it's Christ. Right? This is why um, when Cardinal George uh, consecrated our new altar, he began with a story about his novitiate when he was a novice with the OMIs, uh, the novices took turns cleaning the chapel. And so uh, young Francis George was, uh, had the dustpan and broom and so on, and he, he put the dustpan on the altar. And his novice master happened to come in, and he said, uh, when the novice master was in a good mood, he spoke uh, whatever it was, Dutch or something, uh, for whatever was his home language. When he was sort of in a neutral place, he spoke English. And when he was angry, he spoke Latin. <laughs> and uh, he said, he, he walked up to the altar, grabbed the dustpan, and he said, Altare Christum significat. The altar, altar signifies Christ. You don't put a dustpan on the altar. That's Christ's body. And in fact, if you were to uh, remove the altar cloth, which we don't do, out of reverence for Christ's body, we keep it covered all the time. Uh, if you were to remove it, you would see there are five wounds on top of the mensa. And these were all consecrated by the archbishop when he was here. Uh, that's a sign that it's Christ. It's Christ's body. We, we offer the sacrifice of the mass uh, above Christ's body. Same thing with the, the Easter candle. Why do you put five uh, pieces of incense in the Easter candle? Those five wounds are a sign that that's Christ. Why does the Easter candle lead us into the dark church at the Easter vigil? Because it's Christ leading us. And why do we say, you know, Lumen Christi, as we're doing it, light of Christ. So, so the, why do we incense the Easter candle? Because it's Christ, right? So Christ is, is present in all these other ways too, uh, just in a different mode, okay? But it's easy to miss that if we sort of overly localize by a, a particular meaning of real presence, so that other presences aren't as real, but they are. Uh, it's just that we're using real sort of in a, in a weird way compared to the way, say, the scholastics might have used it. And in fact, we, we symbolize Christ's presence in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, another way in, in the rule of St. Benedict, uh, our Lord said to the apostles, he who hears you hears me. St. Benedict applies this to the abbot, and so in our case it would be to the prior, so if I command a brother, I'd like you to do the dishes, it's Christ saying do the dishes, right? So um, Christ is speaking directly, but mediated through another person, okay? Uh, so uh, I wrote on the blog on our website a few days ago that we live in a time that's marked by a crisis of symbolism. And what I'm going to say next is partly from that, but partly an amplification of what I'm saying there. I stole the, the, the idea of crisis of symbolism from a, a, a friend of mine who's a medieval historian um, who just wrote a book on Mary and the Art of Prayer, which is quite, uh, quite good, especially if you pray the Divine Office. She actually sort of walks through the whole Office of the Blessed Virgin Mary explaining what medieval persons understood about praying the office and what their devotional practice was meant to bring about. Uh, and uh, um, she had a lot of trouble publishing it, 
because it was felt to be sort of not academic enough because it was sort of too personally invested, <laughs> right? Um, this is exactly the problem that Steiner was talking about. The academic writing as a way of excluding the personal commitment from the, from the thing, right? So um, let's, let's begin by an interesting reflection that we don't think about often. Words are symbols, okay? So um, as I'm talking to you, I'm using sounds that you, you hear and you interpret them. And from what you interpret by the sounds I'm making, you can make a pretty good guess as to what I'm thinking, right? So I, we actually, but you, you can't get into my head directly, at least not yet, right? Like maybe some of you can, maybe some of you are psychics or something. But um, normally the way we communicate uh, our inner ideas, our commitments, our convictions, even just, uh, you know, sort of boring intentions, like, you know, which uh, is what I'm doing now, we, we use symbols, we use words. And that these are symbols, I, I think, is easily proved by the fact that si je parle français, vous ne comprenez pas, quelquefois, right? So if I switch into French, some of you get it, some of you don't, because I'm using a different set of symbols, but I'm meaning the same thing. So what's inside me is, is roughly the same, not exactly the same, but you're no longer able to uh, make sense of the symbols so that it communicates what I'm thinking, okay? Here's what I, I realized in working on this blog post. We can't understand ourselves without symbols, okay? We cannot make sense of ourselves without symbolizing ourselves in some way. So if I... If I try to think about what's going on in my life, why do I make the choices I make? What do I like? What do I dislike? What strikes me as authentic? Like what would be really me in this circumstance to do? Or what would be great for that person to do? What do I think is meaningful and beautiful in life? What matters to me? What do I think is dangerous or a little unseemly? Like what, what makes me weirded out in some way? I can only make sense of this at some level by putting this into words, okay? By, by writing it down or speaking about it with a friend. And you know, I think you've often had the experience where you have something that's really important and you try to speak it and you can't quite make it make sense. So you keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, and eventually you get to some clarity about what you think, but usually through speaking with someone who you trust, right? Or uh, and then this is, psychotherapy is all based on this, right? You get people to talk about themselves, don't you? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and out of confusion, hopefully, by examining the kinds of words I use, I can come to a better understanding of what's going on inside of me. But I'm using symbols to do it, okay? So symbols are really important. And that's why, the reason I'm stressing this is because sometimes we contrast the real presence with symbolic presence. And, and this denigrates symbols in a way and that's dangerous because without symbols, we can't really know ourselves and we can't really know others. Um, and in a sense, the real presence is the densest of symbols. It's, it's sort of a meta symbol. Uh, it, it, it goes beyond what symbols normally do, but it's, a, it's part of that reality that Cardinal George's, uh, you know, his novice master, when he said the altar signifies Christ, it does so by, by symbolizing his presence. Uh -huh. um, that phrase, the word you just used, meta mm -hmm. symbol, I've yeah. never heard it before. Okay, I just made it up. <laughs> I think you have symbol, and then you okay. just stumbled across a really important form formulation. For uh -huh. say stumble. Yeah. Um, it's a meta symbol because you, your attention to it points you to everything else. It, uh, yes, Christ being the Logos makes sense of everything else, right? And we know who he is most intensely by the fact that he's our food, <laughs> our food and drink, like our sustenance, right? And that, that he is that because he sacrifices himself and all of the things that go with the Eucharist, that is the point from which all of this meaning flows. So yeah. does that mean that in the liturgy, mm -hmm. when, when you're asking us to see mm -hmm. the presence there. Mm -hmm. We're being asked to see the presence there and then see it in everything else. 
Yes, yes. It, the, the Eucharist is the source and summit of all of our life of faith. So, yes. And in fact, that, that, that's very interesting. If, if I could make a point about this that demonstrates. Do you remember um, after the consecration, before we got the new translation, do you remember what the priest said? Uh, he invited everybody to do something. So, um, blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Do this in memory of me. Genuflect, he turns to the people and says, Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Remember that? Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Now, what does he say? The mystery, the mystery of faith. Right, so the, the pro, that, that's, a, that's the actual translation. This mysterium fidei is the Latin. The mystery of faith is the whole thing that surrounds the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It's not something we just say. We don't, we don't proclaim the mystery, which we can but what the, what the priest is saying is, here he is. This is the moment. Christ is present and, and in the Eucharist. And, and then we respond to the Eucharist, not to some mystery out there, but to the real thing. <laughs> so, so this is a significant change in the, um, in the translation. The earlier translation shows a kind of being, it's, it's infected by like, we, we have to do something. We have to proclaim it. We don't have to do anything, but be amazed that, that Christ has done this, that the mystery is present. So that's actually, um, you, you see that as Catholics, again, articulating this, we're struggling to make sense because our words don't quite match anymore what we're intending to communicate. They're never adequate. They're, they're never adequate, that's true. That's one of the things I was going to say. Um, so I'll tell you, do you mind if I, I get back here? Yeah. So, um, okay, so... I, I only have access to myself through symbols, okay? And here's the, something that might sound crazy, but this is important to realize. The symbols are, are ones I inherit from other people. You know, the words I use, I didn't invent them except a meta symbol. I just invented that. <laughs> but even that, you know, I took meta and I took symbol. They're two ideas that other people gave me and uh, it seemed to fit the moment. So, but when I talk about, well, what's meaningful for me? The word meaningful, someone else gave me. It's a gift that I received from my parents, from my culture. And it allows me then to become who I am by, by using these words and trying to make myself more adequate to them. The incarnation, I've already touched on this, the word of God, the Logos, enters this world of symbols and he gives us the key that unlocks all of them. Uh, this is why through the Logos, all things were made. So it's, it's in hearing the way God speaks about things that we understand what they are. Uh, and this is why uh, uh, St. John Paul II loved to quote Vatican II on this. Christ reveals man to himself. Christ reveals us to ourselves. Uh, it is God speaking in this man that shows us who we are. And, and we unpack this then the rest of our lives and hopefully the rest of eternity, right? That, that we, we come to a deeper and deeper understanding of who God is, who we are, who our friends are, our families are. Uh, and, and there will never be an end to that because we're spiritual beings. Uh, but it's really quite remarkable that, that we only understand ourselves by symbolizing ourselves in some way. Yeah, yeah. That's because we ourselves are science. You're right. Yeah, I was going to say that next, too. I'm going to read exactly what I have down. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, where is it? I, I have it in here. I see. Yeah, I have it here. Our bodies, by the way, are also symbols. John Paul II, again, called the body the sacrament of the person. We communicate with our bodies. And this communication, though, reveals the spiritual person, the presence of the person behind the body, right? Uh, uh, we are our bodies. We're not separate from our bodies. But there's a, a spiritual presence that we're communicating with our bodies. Um, so, so thank you. <laughs> um, here's the problem, though. I fear that we're losing the ability to notice that there's a gap between the symbol and the reality that it conveys. There's always a bit of slippage. We can never... This is, it's the same, the, the obvious version of this is um, I can never say of uh, Father Edward, I know everything there is to know about Father Edward. So when I say Father Edward, what I mean by that is all there is to mean. 
Because since he's a, a person, there's, there's always something more to know about him. And so again, my understanding of him is always going to be growing. It should be, one hopes, if, if, I, if I treat him with the kind of reverence that, that I should. But this is true of all of our words. They're always somewhat inadequate to what we're trying to convey. Um, so symbols always convey more than, or that, that's their function. They, they are the gateway into the spiritual world where uh, there, there is this fecundity of, of life. So the word uh, symbolon in Greek, by the way, that's the word uh, that we use for the creed. The creed is a symbol, okay? Um, it, but literally what it means, uh, balain is to throw, and sin is together. So you take things and you throw them together. And um, this came from the way uh, Greeks would use uh, ostraka, You'd, you'd break a piece of pottery and two people would, would share it so that when they were brought back together, you could see that uh, uh, the same, you know, you were going back to the same person. Um, so it was a way of connecting things that fit together. Uh, so a symbol move, throws our mind across to something uh, that we're trying to understand. It me- the symbol mediates the spiritual reality that we're, that we're trying to get to. Uh, here's an interesting thing. What's the Greek word for devil? Diabolos. Diabolos. What does diabolos mean? Do you know? Well, again, the, the idea of the uh-huh. uh, throwing. Throwing. Diad that means like separate or apart. Or yeah. Different. Scatter. Yeah. yeah it, it, there, there are several versions of how the diabolos gets his name. Uh, diabolic. Uh, Dia can mean a cross. So the, the devil throws stumbling blocks in your way of understanding. Right? He blocks your path in a way. Uh, he's the opposite of the symbolic order. Okay? Uh, so, now I skip this next part because I've already said about our bodies being symbols. So what does it mean to say we have a crisis of symbolism? Um, it starts with uh, a habit we've picked up from, from math and science. Uh, in in uh, contemporary math and science, though this has always been a goal of math, uh, and uh, I was, uh, I, I almost uh, got a, a second major as an undergraduate in mathematics until I got to analysis and it got a little tricky for me, but um, the, the goal is a one-to-one correspondence between the thing and the symbol, and no slippage at all. Um, and in, in math, this works pretty well to a certain level. Um, so even though uh, the word, the, the number two, again, is a symbol, uh, you can map, say, and, and then say the, uh, the plus sign is a symbol. You can map the signs two plus two to a function of numbers that's pretty exact and it, and it doesn't change, right? It actually works pretty well. And you can do this at very high levels of abstraction with mathematics. You can have all these symbols Physics is pretty good at this too. Uh, you can have all these symbols and they match very regularly what they're representing, okay? And I think as you're all aware, <clears throat> uh, in, in uh, contemporary academic world, we're, uh, there's a kind of science envy that the other subjects have. We're trying to make everything scientific. And the problem with this is that we forget that we're using symbols because we're trying to make the symbols sort of match reality too closely and forgetting that there's this slippage, that symbols are always meant to sort of break us open to something much vaster than the sort of narrowing uh, thing that we're doing. Uh, so, and, and so one of the things we can do again is we can think, I, I can say about Father Edward, for example, to use that example, that when I say that, he is that. That's, that's it. There, there is, and again, what, what happens is the presence behind that, that remainder, that surplus uh, of who he is that's other than what I mean by Father ever disappears. Uh, it's just like when I say two plus two equals four, I say, Father Edward is sitting there. I sort of mean the same thing. And that's a problem because we forget that there are you know, spiritual entities in our midst. Uh, and and uh, we, we can forget that just because someone disagrees with me doesn't mean uh, that they've 
cease to sort of count as part of the human race. You know, that, that's the same problem that I, that I see. So, but the world itself, you see, I, I mentioned uh, that uh, the Logos, God's word, unlocks the meaning of everything for us. And so um, up until the Middle Ages, there was this idea of a natural contemplation. And it meant seeing God's intentions in all the things in the world. So if I see uh, a dog, for example, why did God create a dog? Okay, now it sounds like a silly question in one way, but in another way, it's really important because God would not have created a dog if he wasn't intending to communicate something of his love to me. Okay, the things that, that, that are in my presence right now are not accidents. There are no coincidences, John Paul would say, right? So um, the fact that dogs have certain qualities is a sign um, of something. God is, t- is telling me something about his, uh, as I say, oh, God's always communicating his love. Um, you know, we're, we're finding out that, for example, you know, animals, especially domestic animals, have all kinds of things they can do for people who are suffering, right? Dogs are particularly incredible. Uh, They're really smart. And uh, um, uh, one of our brothers has a a niece uh, who, uh, I don't remember the name of the condition, but but she's subject to to, uh, multiple seizures per day, and it's not something they're able to control. They can train a dog to tell when she's going to have a seizure, and the dog can can move up and, and give her solace, uh, because some tactile uh, experience can help mitigate the effects of the seizure. Uh, she can lay down, like she, she can't even tell what's going to happen necessarily, but the dog can. So she can lie down and, and not hurt herself when she has the seizure. So, uh, so why did God create dogs? Well, maybe this is one reason. Because they can do this, because this, the dogs can smell something that we can't, we can't sense. And dogs are friendly, you know, they can help people. So uh, this is an amazing thing that God would give us dogs. But if we just see dogs in a kind of scientific way uh, and, and forget that God is behind that, again, God's presence kind of flees the situation. It just becomes a scientific transaction. Uh, so I, got, I have to wrap up here for today. Um, I'm going to be trying to unpack more of these ideas uh, on the website. And so if you, if you have a chance to read what I'm writing and you want to respond, or either in the comments or by email, I would welcome that. Especially trying to clear up, like if there are things I'm saying you don't understand, uh, please feel free to share that with me. So let me wrap up here in the next five minutes. I just finished preaching a retreat uh, a couple weeks ago at St. Bede's Abbey in Peru, Illinois. And uh, it's, it's a great privilege to be able to preach retreats, and I, I've done many of them now. And I always begin with uh, John Cashin, a quote from him in uh, his 14th conference. He says, We practice the frequent reading of and constant meditation on Scripture so that we may be open to a spiritual point of view. Okay? Uh, and I do this because even monks lose sight of the fact that we have to have a spiritual point of view on things. And this is, you know, we get, we get caught up in the rat race like everybody else. We've got, uh, we've got lots of guests coming. Uh, I'm the accountant for the monastery. So, you know, a couple days a week, I've got to sit there with the accounting software and enter uh, invoices and print checks and figure out taxes and blah, blah, blah. Um, We've got to do dishes. It's easy to forget that the dishes are part of God's gift too, right? Um, so what this means is things are not what they immediately seem. Okay? The dishes are not just dishes. Dogs are not just dogs. And to see what is really going on, to come to the spiritual point of view, probably requires ongoing conversion for all of us, a change in the way we see things, right? And to see what they symbolize, uh, to, to have our minds thrown across from this world to the spiritual world and to see how God sees things. Uh, created objects and artifacts open onto other realms. You know, why, why do I wear this? Why not just dress like everybody else? Why do I wear this? I'm symbolizing something, aren't I? Why this? Why do I walk around with a Roman uh, instrument of torture on my chest all day? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to symbolize something to myself and others. 
I'll say, if I, if, you know, sometimes I go for a walk, I'll go for a walk without a habit because um, uh, we don't have 140 acres or 1,000 acres or something where we can go for a walk and, and be alone. We live in a city, and if I go out for a walk like this, everybody wants to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so if I go out uh, with, with, uh, in, in uh, plain clothes, no one recognizes me. I look like anybody else. And uh, so I, I'll be left alone. But it makes a difference to how I carry myself. You know, if I'm walking around like this, I'm, I'm reminding myself that I'm a certain kind of person. And it, it's harder when I'm, I'm dressed like everybody else. Uh, so all of the things we do open out into other realms. Uh, and the strongest example of this, created objects and artifacts become sacraments. So again, I'm, I'm making a distinction here between things God created and then artifacts, things we make. But both of them can symbolize things. And I always find it fascinating that this, the Eucharist is not wheat and grapes. Okay? It's bread and wine. So it's, it's, they're artifacts. Right? They, they take God's creation, but they add something human to them. Right? Human industry, it's the work of human hands, we say at the altar. Right? So, so we're cooperating with God to bring this about. Um, these uh, common items, bread and wine, become in the gaze of the spiritual woman or man, the body and blood of the Son of God. Now, a spiritual point of view requires that we learn how to read spiritually. Um, and here's another, uh, I, I started off my blog post talking about um, discussions I had in a forum uh, about 10 years ago between Christians and atheists. And what was really striking to me about these discussions is that most of the Christians and atheists shared a, a, a point of view that I didn't share, which is, that, for example, um, uh, almost no one else in the discussion, there was one other guy who, who actually was an evangelical convert from Hinduism, uh, he seemed uh, to, one of the things he seemed to get that, that I was having trouble communicating even to the other Christians in the group is that you don't read the Bible literally. I mean, you do, but you don't. The Bible is something more like a poem or a love letter, right? So you read it because it's Christ speaking. And um, uh, this requires a spiritual point of view and it creates it, but not if we read it as critics or as, uh, as, as fundamentalists or literalists. Like that only goes so far. Um, and lots of difficulties we were having communicating with each other, I thought would go away if I could, if I could somehow help them to see that, as I say, the, the scriptures uh, are communicating not like a, a manual, a moral manual, um, but as a loving message from God. Uh, and so last example, and then I'll have to stop. When I studied Hebrew uh, at Spurtis College downtown many years ago now, um, our first exam, <laughs> we had to translate a bunch of Hebrew. Um, and uh, when the, the teacher passed the, the test back, uh, she was Jewish. She said, I, I have to share something with you that's very funny. Uh, the word Torah, when uh, you translated it, all the Christians in class translated it as law, and all the Jews translated it as Torah. And here's the thing, Torah does mean law, but in an older understanding of law, law meant teaching, right? So the law was meant to educate people how to be human. And we have changed law to be a, an arbitrary, voluntary imposition by someone who has power just to keep the peace with everybody. But it doesn't teach anymore. We don't, well, some of us still believe that. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why, say, you know, permissive abortion law is a problem because it teaches people that human life is, is expendable. Um, but... Uh, on, the, on the whole, we don't think of law as being something that teaches. Uh, and as a result, uh, but, but uh, the Jews in the class saw this. Torah was something else. Yeah. This is why your Hindu friend was able to listen with a different ear. I, I think so. Because in Hinduism and Buddhism, the word Dharma uh -huh. means truth uh -huh. and teaching and then law. Yeah, yeah, right. So, 
So it's, it's, and again, it's part of a, a different, older worldview that's had certain continuities that, have, that we've kept up. Well, as I say, I'll, I, I haven't really wrapped this up in any good way, um, but uh, um, I, I hope this at least, at least provokes some, some, um, some, some thinking on your part and some questions. And as I say, I would be happy to respond. Um, you, you may have noticed if you follow our website that I, I have been able to write regularly for the past month and a half. Pray for me that I'll continue to be able to do that. Um, uh, but then I'm going to be exploring some of this and uh, also more of this question of conversion and why, why conversion is so hard uh, for us today and, and why I think it's so necessary that we keep talking about conversion, that you know, we, we really... We have, we have so much that we can offer the world today, and the world is so needy, um, but, but the best thing we can do is, is change who we are by, by cooperating with grace, you know. Uh, so, uh, I'll stop there for today, and um, uh, yeah, well, let's pray together to uh, ask Our Lady's help. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now with the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.